And if you are, I mean, if you're not dismissing kids, you can also find your way to Ephesians 5 is where we'll be today. I think I may just jump into this. We've got a a, a wonderful text here, uh, a wonderful uh, image uh, for us to celebrate Christ here. So I want to get in and get rolling on it. So um, if you're able to, out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask that you stand as we read Ephesians 5, 22 through 31. Wives, submit to, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife uh, see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, God, I, I pray that as we, as we enter this text, uh, it could be a familiar text, it could be a dreaded text, it could be a delightful text, it could be a well-worn path uh, for us, it could be absolutely brand new information. Um, I pray that you would, you would wash us with your word uh, today uh, so that we might be presented to you in splendor without spot, wrinkle, as holy and without blemish. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your, your beauty and truth that we get to uh, reflect on Christ and his bride, the church, today. Amen. So, um, there are many times uh, in the Bible, it uses a lot of imagery. I mean, all over the Bible, there is imagery. There's a lot of logic written within, you know, things like Ephesians, but there's also a ton of of imagery. Um, and, uh, and these images are, are oftentimes given to us to, uh, to understand God, uh, to understand Christ, to understand our relationship uh, better. Um, you know, I, I think of, you know, back in John, the I am statements. Those are all given uh, primarily to help us to understand who is Jesus in a very unique way. Um, but then also, we're, we're given uh, some images that help us to understand our identity and our relationship to Christ. So, you know, when, when, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, that, that helps us to understand him a little bit, and then it implies that we relate to him that way. Here in Ephesians, um, there are several images that, uh, that Paul provides that help us to understand uh, our relationship, who we are, and our relationship, really, uh, uh, to Christ. Uh, he uses the language throughout the, throughout the book. He uses the language of the body of Christ. So then we go into that image and understand how we relate to Christ, to relate to God, to relate to one another. Um, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then he also says here in Ephesians 5, after what I've just 
uh, read, oh, and into, into Ephesians 6, he, he gives us the analogy of, uh, or the image of, of parents, children, and parents, uh, and our children and fathers. And he gives us that kind of image, that relationship here that we have on earth to kind of understand a little bit more of the dynamic uh, between God, our Father. He also says something about uh, uh, bond servants and masters, or, or, you know, sometimes we say employees and employers, and he gives us the workplace to understand that dynamic, that role, that authority that's there. Uh, right now, today, what we've just read here in Ephesians 5, he gives us an image of marriage to understand the church and their, her relationship to Christ. Um, we were talking about this with uh, some pastors um, this week, some of the preachers here, uh, and Thomas Hope just gave me, uh, just, he just kind of said something that was so wonderful that I just want to quote him <laughs> on, on setting this up. You know, speaking of this idea, in verse 32, uh, it reads, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, especially on that verse. Now, Thomas said this, I'm just going to read what he said, and I tried to write as fast as I could as he was talking, so I apologize if I'm a little off here. Uh, the way that Paul uses the word mystery here, or in general, is not the way that we use the word mystery. It's not so much cracking a case, but it has to do more with the mystery religions. These religions, which, we, uh, which were everywhere in Ephesus, so the church that's reading this, had more to do with the unveiling of a spiritual theological truth or insight. Uh, a window, so to speak, into what could, be not, uh, what could not be known otherwise. This mystery was a window into a deeper reality. So what Paul is essentially saying here in Ephesians is that if you want to see the window of the spiritual reality of Christ, that is the mystery of Christ, then take a look at what Christ's plan is for marriage. And I think that's so helpful to see that our, that our marriages or, you know, elsewhere, our our parenting and our, our role as children or our role as bondservants or masters, that those are all windows to understand Christ more. It's a gift that we get. Because marriage specifically points to the relationship between Christ and the church, marriage is not simply a self-revelation of God, though that's exactly what it is. Marriage is also an embodiment of the gospel. Our marriages display for one another the gospel. And so, whether you are in a marriage or you know someone in a marriage, what God has essentially done with marriage is he's wallpapered our reality around us with all of these examples of how a relationship will work between Christ and the church. Yeah, they're flawed, and broken windows. Our goal is not to be that broken window, but we are all our windows to that. So, in your own marriage, there's application here. But I think as the church, as anyone, whether you're not in a marriage or whether you've been in a marriage, this text can give great hope and great joy because it clarifies most Christ's love for the church. And it, and it, and it shapes us to understand how we can joyfully submit to his authority as the church, as his bride. So I really do think that this is a text for all, especially the church. So, when we look through this window of marriage, what do we see? Our outline is very, very simple today. Uh, the first thing that we see is that Christ loves the church, and the second thing that we'll see is that the church submits to Christ, and that's basically it. So, let's go there. Uh, the church loves Christ. So, who is Christ? 
uh, we, we get this here. In verses 25 through 30, we read. Uh, I'll just go with 25. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is the head of the church. We read this here in our text in Ephesians 5. Uh, but it also isn't the first time it comes up. It, it comes up right at the beginning of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians 1 Paul leads off and he explains how Christ is the head. Now there's debate, as there will always be, on every word of the Bible. And uh, uh, what does it mean that he's the head? Uh, I think what, um, is he the source of it, like the headwaters, or is he the authority of it? I think what Paul is, um, what Paul is developing here in Ephesians maybe leans more toward the idea that he is the authority. Uh, because we're going to hear a lot more language here. In Ephesians 1, we've already set up Christ as the authority here. I'm just going to read some of this uh, to you. I'll, I'll set it up. We'll have some of the verses from Ephesians. It'll be 15 through 23. Christ is the head of the church. Paul prays, to, uh, Paul prays and speaks to the Ephesian church. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's language there saying that you might understand this mystery, that you might be able to be enlightened to see through the window and see a deeper reality of Christ. That I pray that this would be the spirit of wisdom, revelation, would enlighten you that, you, that you may know what is the hope What are the riches? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe that he worked in Christ Jesus? His power, the the immeasurable riches were worked through Christ when he raised him and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and dominion. And I think we've got the uh, the rest of the, the verses there, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. It says, he put all things under his feet. This is a language of ordering, that, that Jesus died uh, so that you know, the bride could be washed clean, but also that there is an ordering from the design of, of, of the beginning of creation, that Christ would be the head of the church. He has, he, has, uh, he has put him a ruler and authority and power and dominion. He's put him above those. So he's above all things, not only in this age, but the one to come. So he's above all things forever. That's where he is. That's the reality that's being laid out in Ephesians 1. And then as, as Christ is risen, he put all things under his feet. We're going to come back to that phrase, put all things under his feet, gave him his head over the church. So Christ is the head. So we wonder, who is Christ? Christ is the head of the church. Why do I develop that so, so much? Because it means something for us. Because then what, what, what does that headship look like? What does that authority, very clearly ordered authority look like? Christ's authority is marked by self-sacrificing love. It says here in verse, in, uh, in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no church. So in that way, maybe he is the source of the church because there's no, if, there, if Christ isn't sacrificed, there is no forgiveness for sins and then there is no church that comes together as the forgiven sinners of God. So also marriage doesn't work with only one person. It's, it's, it's this symbiotic relationship that, that happens 
there. Christ and his self-revelation, God has decided a church needs to be here to show the fullness of this relationship and my love, and it can be played out only in community. So Christ is the head, Christ is the authority, and Christ then is the loving authority, uh, is, has a purpose. It's focused on the purity of the bride. Okay, so I wanted to lay down the work there because we really need to see that Christ is good. Christ is that definitive authority. What does that mean? I think for specifically within marriage and then generally for the church. So within marriage, we can, we can see some of this stuff, some of the practical things here. As marriage uh, is an embodiment, is an expression of the self-sacrificing commitment of Jesus Christ. That's what should shape our, our love for one another. And see, and I, and I find something like this. So as a husband, uh, I find sometimes that it's hard for me um, to figure out how to be a husband well. One, because I'm a selfish sinner. That's a huge part of it. But then also because uh, I had a, an incredibly absent father, and I haven't actually seen <laughs> the husbanding thing happen at home. And so I feel like oftentimes I'm creating the husband role from scratch and, and making it up. But, 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 but sometimes you can say, oh, that's, uh, I just don't have the tools to do this. And, and maybe you uh, haven't had a great father or you haven't seen husbanding modeled well uh, uh, in your own life and you are a husband or you've been a husband and you're saying, what is this? But I think that the joy in the call of the Christian is that we're not to be windows of our fathers or we're not to be the windows of other good husbands. We're windows to Christ. That's, that's what we're, we're doing. So as husbands, we do have an example. And that example is not the world around us. That example is Christ. That's what we are aligning ourselves to. What does Christ do as a husband? Then when we look rightly to that, we have all we need for that. We are to, verse 25, Jesus gives himself up for her. So give yourself up for her. And this one, I, I want to I hit hard, and I am. This is husbands that feel like I can lean in pretty heavily on my own convictions as well. Give up yourself. I really feel like as, as a pastor, we do a lot of marital counseling, premarital counseling in that. I think one of the, one of the saddest things that, I, that I've, I've found is that oftentimes people will not do premarital counseling before they get married. Worse is when they do premarital counseling, but it's as spiritually edifying as not doing it. Uh, it's just more of a check the box so we can rent the church. Um, and that's a lot of what's going on. So we go through premarital counseling. We say, hey, we're good. We're counseled. We're right. We're set up. But there's never been this idea that the big thing that you're committing to is that you are going to give yourself up to this person continually, ongoingly, daily, forever until you die. Like that is going to be what you do. This is what we do as part of the gospel. And that is a tough one for me. As a punk kid who got married, I didn't want to give up myself. That's, that was like the hardest thing for me. That was the sanctifying journey of like the first five years of marriage is to realize, yeah, it's not all about me. This isn't just an add-on to my life. This is my life. And so give it up. So very pointedly, what am I saying? I'm saying when we give ourselves up, it means that, that we have to move more toward a focus of our wives. Uh, we have to put down the golf clubs, the fishing poles, uh, more often than we would want. We have to put down the, the, the video game controllers more than we often would want. Put down the tools or the crafts or the whatever the projects are. The crafts. <laughs> Stop crafting, guys. Um, the, uh, the home projects, we'll go there. Um, what, do we, what do we do if we're just 
adding on our wife. We're not actually doing what the church does. He gave himself for her. So I do want to. I'm doing this as, as a husband who needs the Spirit to convict me. I'm hoping I lay out some stuff that the Spirit would convict you because we have a generation of fatherless fathers and husbandless husbands, and it's just a bad, dis, it's just a break in generations, and we've lost that, and we've just got a bunch of guys trying to figure life out, and it's not going so well. We need the Spirit to convict us of these things. We need to get over a life of being entitled, and we need to understand that giving up yourself is a good, good thing. Now, that's not the only reason why marriages don't work out, or it's difficult, or people don't get married. There are many other reasons, but I'm just saying specifically to those who need to hear that Work on giving up yourself. And what do we do? It's not just giving up yourself and then you're like, okay, I'm not golfing, now I'm just here. What do you do? Well, what does Christ do is the question we always ask. What does Christ do? He is the point. He is the pattern. What does he give us? Verse 29, for no one had ever hated his own life or his own flesh, but he nourishes and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So Christ gives himself up and then nourishes and cherishes. Those are the things. We nourish, we encourage, we help, we correct, we praise. And we do that with our wives. So do that with your wives, but also always do that with the washing over her with words, helping her to, Hebrews 6, taste the goodness of the word of God. We nourish our wives in the way that Christ nourishes us by giving what we need, and it is God. It is Christ. It's not a vacation. It's not all these gifts. Those are great. Keep doing that. But what they need most to be truly nourished is Christ. So pray at home. So read the Bible at home. So talk about even this sermon at home. And you can't do that if you're not resourcing yourself with the word as well. You're just going to be making it up and cherish her. Love her in a way that is unmistakably for her that is unmistakably with her till the end, and that is unmistakably to her until the real marriage happens, the real marriage of Christ and the church. That's what our call is. Man, if someone would have told me that early on, I probably would have said, I'm going to move that engagement day back a bit because I got some work to do. But I'm telling you, hey, good news. There you go. Uh, We can get working on this now. We can do this now. But I don't think that Ephesians 5 is specifically for the very practical to-dos and homework of only those people who are married. It is, a, it is a mirror to Christ. The big point in this is not husbands do these things. I wanted to urge you that way and let the Spirit roll. The point is Christ is magnificent. And so what do we see of Christ? Christ um, is, is the loving authority self-sacrificing authority that we have, and it is, he is a good authority. He is the true authority. So church, recognize and receive the church's authority, his love. Recognize and receive Christ's good, purifying work in you. So first of all, if you don't believe, believe that he loves you and he died for your sins, that you could be forgiven and presented as holy. I mean, that's the first step. If we don't believe that Christ has died for our sins, we will never believe that he's the bridegroom. We'll never believe that he is this good example. We'll never believe that he's out for our good. It doesn't make any sense. We must first believe that we are sinners and need a savior. Otherwise, the purifying, sanctifying work 
doesn't make any sense if we're already there and without sin. We must believe first. But for those who do believe, who have confessed their sins to Christ, lean into his loving and corrective word. True encouragement is, is something that makes you better. Encouragement is filled with both truth, and the truth is you are a dearly loved sinner, and it is marked by love uh, that, that, that Christ says to you, I love you no matter what. I am with you, and because I love you and I am with you, I am invested in making our togetherness good. That is something that applies to all of us. I love you. I am with you. And I want our togetherness to be good, so let's work on it. That's how God shapes us as this beautiful example of Christ and his bride. So, that's, how, that's the first thing we see is that Christ loves the church. The second thing we see is that, Christ, or that the church submits to Christ. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, this word submit, oh man, it's not a word we use in 2019, but it's one I'm using today because it's here and it's for our good. Uh, this word submit, uh, it comes from a word that, um, uh, it means, it's, it's kind of two, two parts of a word. The first part of the word means under. Um, it means under, and the second part of the word means order. Under order. So maybe if I do this a different way, um, willingly, uh, willingly subordinate yourself is kind of what it means. So submit, willingly subordinate yourself. Willingly place yourself in the right spot on the org chart. Now, if you're thinking my marriage, rah, I'm talking about Christ. Christ is the head, and we willingly put ourselves under his headship, under his authority and his self-sacrificing love. And that's what we're to do. This reordering of creation, this is the right reordering of creation that was marred at the fall. We feel this. If, you, if you're kind of feeling this word submit and within the marriage you're saying, ah, oh, some of this might be from the curse. <laughs> you know, the curse in, verse, in, in Genesis 3, and I want to clarify this, the, the, the curse is not that hus the husband would be ordered above the wife. So that order is not that, you know, the fall happens and the curse is, now the husband is up here. That, that was designed from the order, from the beginning. The curse, however, is that the wife will resent the lackluster husband for his lackluster approach. That is the curse, that you will, he will uh, rule over you and you will, I mean, my paraphrase, you will resent it. That is the curse. I mean, similarly, we see some of this. Work in the curse is not... The curse is not work. The curse is that your work will be difficult. So sometimes we think, ah, uh, you know, my husband, ah, uh, my work. That's not, that's not, that was already there. That's good for us. It just became bad. So what do we do with that? When we, when we rightly order ourselves there, we see that we need to submit to Christ and not to ourselves. This is right reordering and it is good. Uh, Romans 10 Paul writes to the Roman church and uses this same word, this under-ordering, this rightly ordering-ness. And he speaks of it about the Jews who are, who are refusing and they're resistant to placing themselves in the right spot. I'm going I'm to get a running approach at it and then we'll get into these verses here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God... Uh, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The Jews are not saved, he says. 
And here's why. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. What is that knowledge? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they didn't submit, there's the word, they didn't rightly order themselves to God's righteousness. Rather, they made it up. They figured out a way to do it themselves. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. Christ is the head of the church, and he's saying right here in Romans 10, the Jews I'm speaking of, have not rightly ordered themselves under that. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. They have resisted that. They have not rightly ordered themselves under it. Going back to Ephesians, what I what I'd said before, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And he rightly ordered, that's the word that's there, and he rightly ordered all things under his feet so that he rightly rules as the benevolent, God King, the conquering one. We must, as the church, submit ourselves to his authority and to his love if we are ever to be saved. So uh, how how does this work? So we we, we hear some of this. How does this work? Psalm 45, I'm not going to read it. I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, you should go there. It's wonderful. Um, you 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 should, you know, pour over this quite a bit. Psalm 45 is a recounting of a wedding of the most handsome, warring king and his beautiful uh, and gloriously adorned bride. We read it a little bit in our call to worship today. But within this poetic imagery of Christ and the church, the psalmist clarifies, uh, here, here are some words, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Forget your people and your father's house. It says, when we don't rightly order ourselves, we are stuck in the way that we've always been. We are stuck in worshiping ourselves, in in, in living in our sin, in not leaning into the corrective love and and, and the sanctifying word of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he he helps with this a bit. He uh, is speaking of these verses. He says, the house of our nativity, that is our father's house, is the house of sin, the original house we 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 were born in. We were shapened in iniquity. Uh, The carnal mind is enmity against God. We must come forth of the house of our fallen nature, for it is built in the city of destruction. Not that natural ties are broken by grace, but ties of the sinful nature, bonds of graceless affinity. We have much to forget as as well as to learn. And the unlearning is so difficult that that only diligent hearing and considering and bending of the whole soul to it can accomplish this work. It is so hard to turn from our sin, to subordinate ourselves under Christ, that it takes a Herculean effort. And then he goes on to say, and even these would be too feeble, did not divine grace assist. We need the help of God to do this because we are prone to resist this submission to Christ like no other. And we do this every day. We kick against his good ways. And so what does this mean for wives? What does this mean for the church? I think what it means for wives, maybe, maybe a couple things, is to guard your heart from the curse. Guard your heart from the resentment of the lackluster performance of your husband. Maybe put it another way. Guard your heart from resentment that maybe your husband isn't a perfect window and is broken. Um, and give him grace in that and help him with that. And take that frustration 
to God. Guide your hearts to Christ in this because the point is not to see your husband, the window, and that's your Savior. The point is to look through and see the better Savior, the real Savior, the lasting Savior, the bridegroom, the beauty of who Christ is. Our marriages give us something to experience and something to display, but ultimately we must be looking at Christ and his perfect love and his perfect sacrifice and his perfect authority over us, the church. But that doesn't mean that you just bottle it up and then pray to God. I also need to present your request to God rightly for conviction because it's not okay to leave your husband broken and say, uh, this is rough. Pray deeply, honestly, passionately that Christ would convict him of his sin, of his, of his unfaith. We need that. As husbands, we need that. I don't want to hear that my wife's doing that, but I kind of do want to hear that she's doing that because that's for my good. And then also, in relationship, help your husband lead better. We need to, we need to begin entering uh, into uh, good communication. Out of, out of most everything I've ever talked about with people, it seems like the number one thing where it all goes, uh, starts to go downhill, is just communication. When lines of communication are dropped, when they're not truth and love and ongoing, when there are extended periods of communication, very short amounts of communication, when there's more truth and anger than there is love and passiveness, you gotta find the balance here, and it has to be through these waters of back and forth, back and forth, Give encouragement. And honestly, as a husband, it's really freeing when my wife encourages and says, I trust you, even if she knows I'm going the wrong way. You'll learn, and I'm praying that God will correct you to just give some of that leadership. Say, please lead. I, I, I have ways. Interact um, and encourage that way. I feel like sometimes making it up, um, you, you may feel like, and I've heard many uh, husbands uh, say this, uh, uh, I'm killing it. I'm doing a great job. I am doing God's will for my wife in this. And then you talk to the wife, and she's like, and the plan is all the way over here. So yeah, he is. He's spot on with the wrong plan. And uh, we need to get together and make sure we have the same plan. Otherwise, you're leading, great, but you're not leading in the way your wife is measuring. And it's just that disagreement, that, that, that non-alignment. So nice job leading. Make sure we're leading in a way that is most edifying to her for the cause of Christ, so that she may be presented without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, as holy to Christ. That is the goal of what it is. But it's not that Ephesians 5 is most focused on the practical day-to-day of our marriages. Some of that's there. It's on that beauty of the church and, there's, and, and her relationship, our relationship, those of us who believe to Christ. Submit to Christ Cling to Christ, submitting to him in reverence as he leads you into a more pure and holy you. This is what he wants. This is what he does. This is what he has set a task forever to do. So that's kind of it. We have one more point to wrap it up here, but that's kind of the basic of what's happening here in Ephesians. Is that we see this window that marriage provides just as Parents, children is another window in which we understand these relationships. Uh, employers, employees is another uh, way that we understand these. But how do we go about this um, today? What does this mean for us today? See, it's not simply a metaphor. I think if we just look at it as a metaphor, it's neat and it's nice. But it's actually real. It's actually a real marriage. It's actually a real bride and a real bridegroom. 
Like, that's a real thing that we have. We, as the church, will actually be married to Christ. This is a profound mystery, isn't it? But we read this in Scripture. So right now, what is the time here? Right now, the bride awaits her bridegroom. And so that might be an encouragement I want to give us all right now. The bride awaits her bridegroom. You see, throughout Scripture, we never hear of Jesus Christ as the husband of the church. We hear God spoken of Israel and, and some of that. I mean, you read Hosea. Oh, Yahoo, that's, that's, a, that's a feisty one of, 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 of husband and wife and, and God. But Christ, Jesus Christ, is not the husband of the church yet. But he is always referred to as her bridegroom. The marriage is coming. So where we're at right now, as a church, and maybe this is a great uh, a way to, to think about ourselves right now, is that this is the morning of the wedding. We are preparing the bride. We're getting out the dress, making sure it doesn't have wrinkles, making sure it's all clean, um, hungering because we're not eating so much uh, to get it messy, and so we hunger for the wedding and the feast that will come. Right now is the time of preparation. What do we do as we await this marriage? What do we do as the people of God awaiting this? Maybe four things, be very clear with them. Uh, we await with constant readiness. As we await for the bridegroom, we await with constant readiness. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, uh, speaks of this kind of waiting. He says, be ready, look alive. He tells a parable of 10 women uh, waiting for a bridegroom to return, thus initiating the wedding ceremony. Sadly, in the story, only five of them uh, bring enough oil. They're, they're not prepared um, for the long wait and the midnight return. At one point, shouts ring out, Here's the bridegroom, come and meet him. And while those who hadn't prepared due to lack of faith were going to buy more oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him for the marriage feast and then the door was shut. Be ready. When he comes, we must be ready. Be preparing yourself. Be seeking that holiness by leaning into his purifying word, being washed and cleansed by his word, being washed and cleansed by the blood of the lamb who saves us in the first place. Uh, so we await with constant readiness. We await with submissive hearts. Lean into the sanctifying word of God. It's there to make us better by clarifying reality and urging us to align with God's ways so that in any marital status or situation, we are being purified as a bride of Christ to be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy without blemish. But this can only be done by, comfort, uh, by coming forth of the house of our fallen nature and clinging to Christ in faith. I believe one of the most practical tools uh, that God has given the church uh, now uh, for its purifying journey is biblical counseling, uh, especially with this idea of, of premarital uh, counseling. It's a different kind of shepherding uh, that counseling is. It's a different kind of shepherding uh, that feeds couples with truth uh, and, uh, and, and conditions them with, with conversations of their hearts. It helps them just to come to the table and really reason together with, with me, with you, with the Bible, <laughs> and, and, and have that conversation of how are we aligning ourselves there I think that there are, um, there, are, there are a few resources, if you want to just be very, very practical, a few resources that have been helpful uh, in, in the years. Only two is what I'll name. Uh, there's one, Love and Respect, 
Love it, hate it. There's differences there. Uh, there's a conference. There's a book. Some of that stuff's really helpful to get in just to start a conversation there. It's interesting that it's, also, it's a book, so you can read it and talk about it, but it's also a conference because we need accountability to make sure we're doing that stuff. Another one that I found that is, is, really, uh, is really helpful, uh, Paul David Tripp, he just has some fantastic stuff. Um, he has a conference called uh, Habits of a Healthy Marriage. Uh, it's a cheap one. It's an online one. You can take that, you know, just go through those videos, and he has a whole bunch of resources. You can have those conversations. If you're thinking, I'm not creative. I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to ask these meaningful conversations. Okay, so I'm a pastor, and I need help, too. Uh, so Paul David Tripp, he, he gives a lot of those resources so that if you are a husband, you can lead well. If you are a wife, you can initiate some of those conversations and say, help me this way. Um, it's a great way to go through that. But he has a conference. He also has a book called What Did You Expect? Because he's a counselor and understands exactly the sentiments I've already uh, explained in my, uh, my counseling. We need, we need to lay out what clearly is our role in marriage and how that, not just like, just so that we have good marriages, that's, that's good, but so that we rightly show Christ in our marriages. That's what our call is. That's, that's what our ongoing activity is. So we, uh, we, we wait with constant readiness. We await with submissive hearts, Revelation 19 says, we wait with confident joy. At the very end, we see this marriage to come. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. When I heard, uh, then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty uh, peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe her with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true words of God. That's where it ends. We are waiting for that. We can hunger for that. We can prepare ourselves for that. There will be a marriage. There will be a feast. And all the brokenness in our marriages now, all the brokenness in our singleness now, all the brokenness in our roles, in the stress that's there, in the tension, it all wells up that hunger for that feast and that marriage. And it will come so we can have confident joy. Our life experiences may say, this is great, Marriage is awesome. So we can rejoice that this marriage with Christ will be better. And maybe our marriages say, this is awful. Come, Lord Jesus. And we can look to him and say, one day a marriage will be right and as it is. What joy is that? And finally, as we await, we await with words of hope. We pray for understanding of this profound mystery and we proclaim Christ through the window of marriage, by showing it in our marriages, by naming it in the connection to Christ, and by speaking of it to the marriage of others. So, as someone who is married, I need other people. We need other people who are married to workshop that. We need people who have gone uh, before us, who are older than us, who are more seasoned in marriage, to mentor us. We also need people who aren't married or who have been married to speak to us to that. We need everyone so that we, the ones who carry for this time that image of God, that, that reflection, we can rightly show it to the world. 
Does that make sense? It's a community thing. It's not just, nice job being married, you've arrived. It's, you have now been given this, this, this opportunity to show the world Christ through the marriage. If I were preaching on next week through the passages, I would say, you who are parents, same thing. And then the next week I would say, you who are employed, the same thing. We need everyone to help us rightly display this. I'll finish here with a quote from, uh, from uh, Ray Ortland Jr. Marriage is not merely a human institution, completely malleable in the hands of a human custom. It is a divine creation intended to project onto the screen of human imagination the beauty of a Savior who gives himself sacrificially for his bride and of his bride who yields herself gratefully back to him. That is the gift of marriage. And so today our sermon title is Marriage Matters. Marriage Matters a whole awful lot because it is real and it shows us Christ and it gives us a challenge to work through this identity, this reality, this relationship of Christ in a way where we feel the tensions of the bride and the bridegroom, where we feel the, 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 the temptations of the bride and the bridegroom, but where we await with hope, with confidence, with joy, with expectation.